Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Hebrews. We're in the middle this summer of, uh, of a series uh, on the book of Hebrews. If you've ever read through Hebrews, you know, um, really, Hebrews is, is one of the places in the Bible uh, that, that really um, kind of embodies one of the foundational beliefs also that we have about the Bible, which is that it's unified. God's word is the same from beginning to end. God's word is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same God that we worship in the Old Testament, and we read about the same God in the New Testament. In fact, instead of seeing the Bible as being a divided you know, book of two parts, think about it as a long story with a great completion in the New Testament. In fact, much of what is discussed in the book of Hebrews is the ways that Jesus doesn't necessarily replace, but actually fulfill what is talked about in the Old Testament. All of, uh, all of the steps that are gone about in the Old Testament, all of the patterns that are set, all of the dots that are set down in the Old Testament are now connected by Jesus. The pattern has been established, and he fulfills it. In chapter 7, which is where we are, we're skipping ahead just a little bit from where we were last week, we learn about Jesus, our high priest. He's connected to this guy that we actually meet in Genesis called Melchizedek, I'll get back to that in a second. And we get to hear of Jesus' work on our behalf. So listen now as we learn about how Jesus intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter 7, I'll start reading at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of, those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. We say that, by the way, not just because it's something nice to say after I read the Bible, but because we are thankful for God's word. We come under it. It is our authority. Let's offer some thanks to the Lord in prayer before we start. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the high priest that we have that continually intercedes for us. We ask now that you would open your word to us so that we might see Jesus more clearly. We pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, let, me, let me let you in on something that's happened to me more than once. It goes kind of like this. Somebody asked me, can you please pray for me? There's something coming up in my life that I would really like prayer about. And I say, of course, I would love to pray for you. And then about 24 hours later, that person calls me and says, hey, I just wanted to give you an update. Thank you so much for praying. I really appreciate that. And it's that point that it hits me that I think, whoops, I forgot to pray. That ever happened to you? Or maybe this, you get up early in the morning, you've woken up to your alarm, you make the coffee, you're feeling good about having some great time with the Lord this morning, you've carved it out, 
and you sit down and you're ready, and about 12 minutes later, you've made a really great grocery list. Or you've buried yourself in the news of the day, and you realize 20 minutes in, I haven't cracked open God's word at all. The coffee tastes good, but I haven't done what I actually got up to do. Or maybe you come and you sit down at church in these incredibly comfortable uh, benches here, and as you sit down, you realize, you know, the last time that I actually thought about the Lord was the last time I was sitting right here. Now, listen, we don't ever expect when we get together that everybody believes the same things. In fact, we're really excited when those who are questioning Christianity or exploring or not sure what they think when they're here worshiping with us. But let me just talk to Christians for a second. As Christians, we have said publicly, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. But how often is it when you realize, you know, I haven't thought about the most important person in my life for a week or more. I've thought about my job. I've thought about that my kid needs to go to baseball practice. I've thought about my bank account. I've thought about my dwindling retirement account. I've thought about all kinds of fun things or not so fun things but I haven't actually given thought to the one person that I have claimed publicly is the most important person in my life. Anybody ever experienced that? I have a friend, have a couple of friends actually, (laughs) I probably have more than a couple of friends, who are almost completely responsible for our relationship. Like if they did not call me or text me or write me, we would not have a relationship. It's because they're really good at keeping things up in our relationship and I'm really not good. You know, kind of like the pen pal that if you just stop writing, you know, then it's over. The relationship is done. Is that the way that our relationship with the Lord goes? When we doze off trying to pray or when we end up in the middle of a grocery list or the news or the football scores from the night before, does our relationship with the Lord just kind of stop? Is it like a bike? When I ride my bike and I stop pedaling, I'm going to stop. The bicycle's going to stop, and because I don't have that great a balance, I'm probably going to fall over. Or is it different? When I was a kid, I was fascinated by a couple things in the car. One is a car wash, which I'm still fascinated by. That doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. But I was fascinated also with coasting. When I was a kid, I, whenever we would go down a hill in the car, I would always ask my mom or dad, coast, take your foot off the gas, and we're going to keep going. It just blew my mind that you were not accelerating, but we were going, sometimes even picking up speed. I loved it. I wanted to do it all the time. That's actually probably a much better illustration for how our relationship with the Lord is. See, what God says in his word in Hebrews here is that we have a high priest who is continually offering intercession for us. Let me translate that for you. It means that Jesus is at work even when we're not. Jesus is at work all of the time, even when I am checked out mentally, even when I am sleepy, even when I am forgetful, even when I am rebellious. Jesus is at work on my behalf. We just read these words that Jesus intercedes for us. It simply means that he steps in where we can't be, and he works on our behalf. That's what we're going to dig into a little bit this morning. Jesus working when we are not. Jesus interceding on our behalf. 
And we'll look at it in three different ways. We're going to look at Jesus' intercession uh, as perfect, his perfect intercession for us. We'll then look at Jesus' continual intercession for us, and also his complete intercession. So Jesus is at work perfectly, he's at work continuously, he's at work uh, completely. And then after that, we'll spend a little time talking about how we're going to apply those things in our lives. All right, let's talk about that first one. What do I mean when I say that Jesus is at work perfectly for us? Well, look again at verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. The author of Hebrews is, is actually pulling again from the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a thread that weaves throughout the book of Hebrews. And he's talking, as we have talked in the past few weeks, about the idea of a priesthood. God had appointed a group of men, in fact, a lineage, the line of Aaron, to be intercessors, to stand in, to be the go-between between God and man. And the priest would come and offer sacrifice to the Lord. And regular priests would do this in different ways, but the high priest, this one particular person, would go into the very special place in God's temple or in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and he would only go in there once a year, and he would offer a very special sacrifice signifying the cleansing of God's people by the Lord. The sacrifice takes the punishment instead of the people. But something fascinating also had to happen whenever a priest would go and offer sacrifice. Before the priest could go and offer a sacrifice for the people, he would have to first offer a sacrifice for himself. The priest himself would have to go through a pretty long ritual of cleansing, a pretty long ritual of sacrifice to take care of his own sin before the Lord, before he could then go and offer sacrifice for the people. See, the implication was really clear. The priest has a special job, but he's just a guy like you and me. It's the same as me. I'm just a guy like you are. I have to go before the Lord and cling to Christ in the same way that you do. And in the Old Testament, that was true of the priests. They had to offer sacrifice for their own sin before they could offer sacrifice for the people. But in this incredible truth that gets rolled out over Hebrews chapter 7, he starts actually by introducing this figure named Melchizedek, a priest that we meet actually way back in Genesis that Abraham meets in the middle of the desert, a very mysterious guy. And the writer of Hebrews is connecting Jesus, the high priest, with actually the priestly line of Melchizedek rather than the priestly line of Aaron. And he says, because of this, Jesus is a different kind of high priest. And the biggest difference in this high priest and all the other high priests that you've ever known is that Jesus is perfect. Jesus doesn't deal with tainted motivations like you and I do. Remember that old Janis Joplin song, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all have Porsches, I must make amends. 
That is oftentimes our prayers. We probably don't pray it in those words, but a lot of times that's what we mean. Lord, can you just give me what I want? If I could just get the things that I desire out of this life, then I'll be happy with you and then I'll serve you and everything will be fine. We'll be good to go. Jesus doesn't act like that. His motivations are not tainted like ours. They are unstained, holy, perfect, as we just read. His actions also are perfect. They are not broken, even well-meaning actions that happen the wrong way like we often do sometimes. Jesus' actions are perfect. His priesthood is perfect. Think of a a young child who wants to impress his mom, and he goes out and he picks some flowers for his mom, and some of them are flowers, but most of them are weeds and brambles and poison ivy and thorns, and he brings this big bunch in, but before he can go give them to his mom, his dad intercepts him and says, this is so wonderful, son, let me help you out. And he kind of quietly takes this patch of weeds and replaces them with beautiful roses and removes the thorns and removes the poison ivy so that they are then presented to the mother as beautiful and perfect. That's what Jesus does for us. He takes our messed up and selfish and self-righteous motivations and he replaces them with his perfection. And so as he intercedes before the Father on our behalf, he does so perfectly. He does so with clean motives and clean actions. He does so in an incredible way. That's the first part. Jesus intercedes for us perfectly. He's at work while we are not, and he is at work perfectly. Here's the second piece, is that his work is also continual. His work that he is working when we are not, his intercession is continual. Look at verse 25. Consequently... Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. His intercession is continual. The Bible says there he always lives to make intercession for us. He is always living to make intercession for us. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He says he's always on the job, ready to speak up for them. Jesus is always on the job, he's always there, and he is always ready to speak up for us. See, when I say that I will pray for you, I really hope that I will, and most of the time I do, but you know what? When Jesus says he'll pray for us, he always does. He is always and continuously interceding on our behalf. He is always offering prayers to the Father. Just think about that. You have someone who is praying for you full time. The Bible says that we, God's people, are supposed to pray without ceasing. Guess what? Jesus actually does it. He prays without ceasing. He offers prayers to the Father on our behalf. There's other places in the Bible that says that this is the role of not only Jesus, but the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. There's a really uh, a wonderful comment. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, is commenting on, on Romans 8, another passage that has this similar theme. And he says, he poses this question. He says, what if God answered our prayers according to what we should have prayed rather than what we did pray? What if God actually answered us according to what we should have prayed rather than what we did? What if we had someone who was translating on our behalf? to offer up the prayers that we should be praying and are not. My daughter Virginia is in Puerto Rico right now. 
She's loving it, having a fabulous time, but she's also in the midst of a Spanish-speaking country, and she speaks a little bit of Spanish. So, so oftentimes, in order for her to be able to have a conversation with someone or just to get by in society, she needs a translator. She needs our friend to come in and say, actually, this is what she means to say, and then he says it all in Spanish in the way that she couldn't. What Hebrew says here is that Jesus actually does that for us that he translates our broken, messed up, self-righteous, selfish, self-centered prayers into being actually the prayers that we're supposed to pray. He presents before the Father the things that we should pray so that the Father can actually give us what we need rather than what we beg for so often. In Matthew 6, Jesus actually talks about prayer. He talks about asking our Father for what we need. And do you remember this? He says, you know, what father would ever give a stone to a child who asked for a loaf of bread? The rhetorical answer, of course, being no one. No father would ever do that. What father would ever give a snake, a poisonous snake, to a son who asked for something to eat? No loving father would ever do that. But what is the loving father to do when the petulant son continuously asks for the wrong thing. Commenting on that passage, uh, a theologian named Erasmo Leva Maricacus. That's right, that's his real name. Erasmo Leva Maricacus. Isn't that the greatest name ever? He's actually translated the work of another theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar. Hans Urs von Balthasar and Erasmo Leva Maricacus. I mean, if you don't read theology, there's a reason right there to read theology. You don't get names like that anywhere else. Isn't that beautiful? And Maricacus uh, just really wonderfully writes these words about that. Listen just to this quote, and we'll put it up on the screen as well. If the good father does not give his child a stone when he asks him for a loaf of bread, or a snake when he asks him for a fish, what does the father do when the child demands a stone and a snake for his nourishment and will have nothing else? The good father will allow the child to go hungry perhaps to approach starvation before witnessing the grotesqueness of a stone diet or a bite from a poisonous snake inflicted by his demented child on himself. Where the father dwells, there is no store of evil. God is utterly poor in evil things. He has none to give, no matter how insistently we demand them of him. What if our Lord answered us according to what we should have asked rather than what we did? That is Jesus' continual intercession on our behalf. There's a third piece as well from this passage is that God, Jesus in particular, is at work when we are not, and he is at work completely. Now, that may sound a little odd at first. I just said that he is at work continuously, and now we're saying he's at work completely. I said that he's at work all the time, and now we're saying it's complete. What do I mean? We'll look again at verses 24 and 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Those words I just said, he's able to save to the uttermost. If you've got an NIV in front of you, it probably says he's able to save completely. The difference is the New Testament was written in Greek, not in English, and the translator's job is to try and figure out what in the world is the writer saying in Greek, what does it mean, and how can I then convey that meaning in English? And the word in Greek, actually similarly to the word in English, completely can mean a few different things. 
You can have a completeness of time, or you can have a completeness of extent. If I say, go mow the grass for 30 minutes, when 30 minutes is up, you say, it's complete. If I say, go mow the grass until the grass is mowed, then when you are finished mowing the grass, you also say, it's complete. It can mean both things. It can mean the time is complete. It can mean also that the job is complete. Everything is extent. Here's the beauty of the word in this passage. It means both. What Jesus has done for us is not only finally complete, but fully complete. Jesus has interceded in a way that is fully complete and finished. It is done forever. He has completely pled our case. He has done so fully. He has done so in a way that covers everything. There's nothing left for us to do. There's nothing left for us to cover There's nothing left for us to make up for. There's nothing lacking. There's no little bits for us to say, yeah, but you know, Jesus did most of it. I can kind of just come the next way. No, Jesus has done it all. When I was in college, I had appendicitis. I may have told you this story before, but it was really kind of a crazy surgery. It lasted a little while. I spent like four days in the hospital. I was very sick. I also did not have any health insurance at the time. You can feel the nervousness with me. Well, a few weeks after I got out of the hospital, I got a call from, or I got a bill, actually, from the anesthesiologist's office. Just, this is just the anesthesiologist, okay? This doesn't have anything to do with the hospital or the surgeon or any of the other multiple bills that I was set to get. And their office sent me this nice fat bill that I could not even come close to hoping to pay for. And I called them to ask if I could set up a payment plan for the next 75 years. And I said, I'd like to set up a payment plan. And she said, hang on just a second. She said, I see that there's a discount given and by the hospital, and we've got to honor the discount that the hospital gives. So let me see what that discount is. And she went away for a minute. I held on the phone. She came back. She said, the hospital has chosen to give you a 100% discount. And so we're going to honor that as well. And I said, okay, bye. Click. 100%. There was nothing left for me to pay. There was nothing left for me to do. It was done completely and fully. It was over. I've never heard from them again. I had a different name at the time. I changed it. (laughs) I've never heard from them because they paid it fully. It's done. If you are new to Christianity, if you're exploring it, if you're not really sure what you believe this morning, you've actually heard me just tell you what Christians believe. You've heard me explain what Christians call the gospel or the good news. It's that Jesus has done something that we can't do. And what he has done is done. It's complete. It's final. It's over. He has taken our sin upon him and he has given us his righteousness. If you believe in that and hold to Jesus and his work on your behalf, then you are his and there's nothing left for you to do. As far as your relationship with God goes, it is done, it is final, it is complete. If that sounds like something that you're interested in, I would love to speak with you after church. If you are a Christian and you have heard these words every week as you sit in these hard pews, let me also remind you that that is the thing that we cling to. His work on our behalf is finished and final and complete. It is perfect, it is continual, it is complete, it's done.
So how do we respond to that? What do we do in light of that? There's nothing that we need to do in order to get ourselves into favor with God, but of course there are many things that we can do in order to respond to this wonderful work that's been done for us, in order to respond to God's gracious and loving grace toward us. So let me just introduce three quick things and then we'll close, okay? The first is repent and then rejoice and then repeat. Repent, rejoice, repeat. It's different than wash, rinse, repeat. So just you know, make sure. Repent, rejoice, repeat. Here's what I mean. First of all, if it's that time where you realize, you know what, I've made a nice little grocery list or I've sat down and it's the first time that I've thought about Jesus in the last two weeks, when you realize that, you have a wonderful opportunity to come to the Lord in prayer, to say, Lord, you know who I am, but here I am opening myself again. This, I am deeply broken and I need you. And so, Lord, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me and let me see your love and your mercy toward me so that I might change? Turn me from my selfish heart to a heart that desires to follow you. Turn me from my self-righteousness into humility. Turn me from myself to others. We have the wonderful opportunity to repent. It's not something scary. It's actually a privilege that Jesus gives us. Now, here's a second piece. Rejoice. You don't often see those two words together, do you? Repent and rejoice. But actually, they should go together all the time. Because as we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus' forgiveness, we actually can rejoice in that forgiveness and rejoice in his continual work for us. If you're thinking... You know, the last time I thought about the Lord was the last time I was sitting here. The next thing to think would be, but Jesus hasn't stopped thinking of me. Jesus hasn't stopped working when I've stopped. Jesus has actually been continually pleading my case before the Father. Even though I forgot to pray, Jesus didn't forget to pray. Even though I fell asleep while I was praying, Jesus was awake. Even though I drifted off and dozed into some daydreaming, Jesus was fully engaged and he's done so on my behalf. Friends, that's worth rejoicing over. As you take count of the many times that you have fallen, rejoice in the many times that Jesus has succeeded. It's worth getting excited about. And here's the last one, repeat. And what I mean by repeat isn't do those same things over. What I mean is actually repeat what Jesus has done for you. Because Jesus primarily when we talk about his priesthood, his intercession, we're talking about what he does that we can't do. But there are implications here as well, is that we are actually called to imitate him. We are called to, to, to intercede for others in the way that Jesus has interceded for us, to intercede for them in prayer, to intercede for them uh, in service, to intercede for them in bringing them to know who Jesus is. There's a book back on the book table called The Praying Life, and there's this, this little diagram in this book that's just stuck with me. Of the, the author, Paul Miller, says, you know, whenever you have a relationship with another person, think about it rather than a line as a triangle. It's not just you and this other person, but actually there is you and the Lord and this person. And once we think about it that way, we're talking about interceding for that person in prayer. And so anytime I'm in relationship with this person, anytime I'm thinking about this person, anytime I'm engaged in some way, I'm also engaging in the Lord, with the Lord, in prayer for you. So that I am interceding prayerfully on your behalf. Secondly, what does it mean to intercede uh, in serving others? 
simply it means that we can do for others what they either can't or won't do for themselves, is that we get to actually care for people. I'm going to brag on my wife for a second. A few years ago when we lived in Baton Rouge, I was driving home one day, and driving down the street, I saw off in the distance, Joy was mowing the grass. And that's normally my job. My first thought was, how sweet of her. She's mowing the grass, so I don't have to. But as I got closer, I realized she had finished mowing our grass, and she was mowing our neighbor's grass. They didn't ask her to. She just had the lawnmower out, and their grass was tall. And she thought, I'm mowing my grass. I might as well mow theirs. That's intercession. She was interceding for the needs of another because they were either unable to or just hadn't been able to mow the lawn for themselves. And so she was actually doing it for them. We also intercede for others when we simply bring them to know the hope that we have, when we introduce them to who Jesus is. We're going to have a time actually to do all of these things. I'm giving you just kind of a little bit of a billboard. We're going to discuss this in about a month. But when school starts back up, we're going to have a party. We're going to turn two years old. Isn't that exciting? And it's going to be a time actually where we're going to ask you to invite your friends, to invite people to come and just introduce them to your friends to invite people who are not engaged in another church to come and to meet your friends and maybe even meet Jesus for the first time. And before that, we're going to ask you actually to begin to pray for those friends, to intercede for them in prayer. And during that time, as you actually heard Brent talk about, we're going to talk about how we can even intercede in service for others, even some kids that go to this school where we worship. How we can intercede for others and be Jesus to them in prayer in service, in evangelism. Friends, our great high priest, Jesus, who is working when we are not, who is working all the time, who is always and continuously interceding for us. He's done it perfectly. He does so continuously, and he calls us to intercede for others. Will you pray with me right now that the Lord would enable us to do this, to cling to him and to reach out to others? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful truth that you are our high priest, that you perfectly and continually and finally and fully offer sacrifice on our behalf, that you stand before the Father in our place, that you stand and translate our prayers, that you stand, Lord, and plead our case, that it is done because we have someone who intercedes. What a wonderful truth this is, Lord. It is freeing for us. And so we ask that it would free us then to move toward others, that we might intercede for them, praying, serving, loving, caring for them the way that you have cared and loved for us. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.